Hello, Freedom Fighters. Thank you for listening. This audio interview is brought to you by Open World Magazine, the ultimate guide for pursuing a life of adventure and passion and setting up a location-independent business that can support your dream lifestyle. Go check us out at openworldmag.com. Hey, so welcome to another interview with the Open World Podcast. I have a really fun episode for you guys today. I am joined by Patrick Martin Schroeder. I first heard of Patrick when uh, he was on our top 30 adventurers under 30 list, and he has a well-deserved spot on that list. He's 27 years old. He's on a mission to travel to every country, mostly by bicycle, which I can't imagine the visa issues involved, but he's been to 132 so far. He travels mostly overland. He's cycled from Europe to South Africa, Argentina to Canada, and from Europe to Japan. And, okay, get this, he's wrestled a crocodile, he's been a sniper in the Air Force, run a computer uh, game mod, uh, paragliding, mountaineering, he's crossed Siberia in winter, camped in negative 45 degree uh, Celsius weather, camped in the Sahara twice, climbed 6,000 meter uh, plus mountains, and dived to negative 50 meters below sea level. He even rode a bicycle underwater. So I am really excited to have him here uh, joining us today. How are you doing, Patrick? I'm doing good. Thanks. <laughs> nice, uh, a nice little list you have there. It sounds vaguely familiar. <laughs> I had to get you on the show just to, to talk to you and, and to see what, how you've managed to do what you've done so far and what your experience has been like on this uh, incredible journey. So your, your website is worldbicyclist.com. Um, how did you get started on this? You know, tell me about your backstory. What, what was driving you to, to take the first step on this adventure? Well, the first step was uh, done when I was in school. Um, when I was 16, I started planning my round-the-world trip, which was uh, one year and without a bicycle. I actually talked to my geography teacher, and we planned uh, the route together. He helped me a lot with uh, because I had no idea as a you know, 16, 17-year-old how to set that up. So you knew when you were 16 that you, you wanted to cycle around the entire world, is that right? Well, no, no, not with a bicycle. That was a backpacking trip. Oh, I see. So the original plan was, I think, my abitur, which is like uh, college, then do my military service and then do a one-year round-the-world trip before I go to university. But after the one-year round-the-world trip, I picked up the bicycling and continued. And you just decided that you didn't want to stop traveling, so you, you just ditched the, the 9-to-5 path, is that right? Yeah, I got pretty lucky. Um, before I came home from my one-year trip, I got an email and it essentially read, hello, you have inherited a house. So now I can rent it out and get a passive income, which allows me to travel in you know, the cheaper countries or go buy a bicycle and camping, the more expensive ones. Oh, that's fantastic. So you just got an email that you've even inherited a house from like a, an uncle or something like that? Yeah, grandmother. A grandmother. Oh, okay. I see. <laughs> so when did you start this journey? Uh, was it in your teens or um, how long has it been? Uh, eight and a half years now. So um, by now I'm 28. Uh, I started 2007 when I was 19, just before my 20th birthday. Oh, I see. And, and so why did you decide to, uh, to, to do this current adventure? Like what what was the, the purpose or, you know, the meaning that you were seeking? You just want to, to see the world or is there, is there something more to it? Well, as a teenager, it was that I wanted to see some of the world. And um, I had this big world map and I had 
the things I wanted to see. So I just put pins in it and then I tried to combine them with a route and then, oh yeah, I'm actually going to do this. And I never actually thought I would manage to get one time around the world. Thought maybe I get to Australia or New Zealand and then have to go back. And it's pretty common in Europe that people go backpacking for half a year or a year in between school, university and job. And it kind of organically grew from there. And I just added something every year with something more difficult or bigger trips, something new, pack rafting, bicycling, the mountaineering, and so on. I see. So it's kind of just been a work in progress, and you've just been adding to your uh, portfolio of countries, I suppose, right? Yeah. I did not start off with, I want to go to every country in the world. That <laughs> sounds completely unrealistic. And even now, um, with all the experience I have, it's quite a difficult goal because the countries get more difficult. They get more remote or more expensive or they're closed off to foreigners or unsafe. So I'm not really sure if I can manage to do all 193 in any foreseeable time. I can only imagine, you know, and also I, um, I've done a lot of motorcycle touring, but I did uh, two years ago, I did uh, Mexico by bicycle. And I remember when you just get out on the road and you're all alone and, and I'm just thinking, I'm fucking crazy. What am I doing out here? You know, and, and I think it must, it must be 20 times worse for you. Like uh, when you're out there, you know, alone, and, and do you ever feel like uh, these these doubts or these questions in your head? It depends on the area. I mean, in Europe, for example, the cycling is so pleasant. There are bike trails everywhere. It's, oh, it's summer, nice weather, good food, no problem. And no visa problems either. But if you, for example, cycle through Africa, like I did for a year to Cape Town, then it gets a lot more difficult mentally. Um, more lonely as well because you meet less foreigners and less people you can relate to. Uh, I also have a girlfriend who's coming with me half of the time, so it's not that much alone. So that makes it a little bit easier, I imagine. But um, when, when you went on that, that trip one year, Europe to South Africa, I mean, what I can only imagine, what kind of challenges did you face? You know, what struggles crossing Africa on a bicycle? What was it like? Oh, my. Um, well, in the beginning, I had the Sahara Desert, which was easier than expected because I followed the Nile. But the Sudan, there was the Darfur crisis at the moment and the roads were not paved yet. So that was pretty difficult physically. And I cycled a lot at night just because of the heat. It was up to 50 degrees a day. And then in Ethiopia, it was actually one of the hardest countries for me because it is all hills, all mountains, very rainy, humid, and all the people, they were rather rude. And the street kids, they threw rocks at me and chased after me on the bike. That was a pretty low point of the trip. Afterwards, Black Africa and Southern Africa, it got a lot easier. Uh, suddenly, you have hostels, you meet other foreigners, you have good roads. And um, one of the big challenges was also that at that moment, I was pretty broke. So I had a very low budget, maybe $10 a day. And... Um, yeah, you cycle past a lot of things you would like to see or do, and you can't. So I went to Tanzania, and I did not climb Mount Kilimanjaro because it cost a freaking $1,500. <laughs> you must have had to deal with, like, these uh, inner, like, you know, inner turmoil that, the, like, you know, what am, uh, how am I going to survive, right? Especially when you're in a budget. Did you ever worry, like, that you're going to uh, starve or that you, you wouldn't find a place to sleep or... Uh, I don't know that something might happen to you? No, no, not really. Um, I don't know because 
I've been in the military and I already had one and a half, two years of travel experience when I went to Africa. So finding a place to sleep is very easy. I just pitch my tent next to the road. I don't care. And um, I'm not easily frightened. So going through Africa was actually a nice challenge. It was very rewarding, but it wasn't scary. I see. So do you feel like people make uh, too much of these, these fears as far as danger is concerned? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Most people, they don't know much about these countries except from TV. And then it's either, I don't know, documentaries about animals. And then the other half is civil war and Ebola. And they don't actually show the, the normal life they have there. I mean, just two days ago, I posted my next gear list for... 2016 online and then some comments were like oh yeah you should take this medication you should take this mosquito net you should take some other safety features you will need and so forth and i was like no no you don't really need that <laughs> yeah that's a great point i don't think i've ever uh, gotten shots or anything like that when i've traveled have you uh like like um vac vaccinations vaccination yeah I you have yeah i got all of them oh, okay. <laughs> i remember <laughs> before my first trip Something like a thousand bucks just for vaccinations. I got a dozen oh. of them. Oh wow! Okay, because I, I haven't but, uh, um, I haven't been to Africa yet, but I don't know what it's what it, what it's like down there. So, well, for some countries you just need them for the bureaucracy. Otherwise, you can't get the visa. They won't let you over the border. But um, I do have a first aid kit, of course. But it's really just first aid. It's for injuries. And if I get sick, I just go to the normal doctor. Yeah, so what's what's the worst thing that's happened to you? Have you ever been gotten really sick or, or injured on, on the road? Oh, well, I got dengue fever in Indonesia, which is similar to malaria, not quite as dangerous, but there's no medication against it. Then there's the crocodile thing. Um, then my bike got stolen once. That was pretty bad. That was actually on the Africa trip. I started from Germany, and on I had three days of rain, and on the fourth day, my bike got stolen. And it wasn't really insured for that much. So that was a big setback. But um, I don't know, some small stuff went missing. A handlebar bag got stolen on the Amazon, my passport, and uh, lots of good pictures on there. They were gone. That's, that's really sad. Nothing really, I don't know, earth-shattering, like nothing that would stop me. So how did you end up, uh, tell me more about some of these experiences. Like you said you wrestled a crocodile. Uh, where was that and when did that happen? Oh, that was in Mozambique. Uh, at the border, I met a guy who said, oh, yeah, I run a farm here. Come by. You can, you know, couch surf, stay a night. And that farm was called Bananalandia. And one of the guys who runs it, his friend runs a crocodile farm. So we went visit there. And um, the owner asked me if I want to go croc hunting. So I was like, yeah, well, why not? The thing was, I didn't realize that they were catching the crocodiles alive for the farm. So you just go out at night with this tiny boat with an electrical engine and a huge um, torch onto the lake and you look for the reflecting eyes in the water. So it's at night. And then you climb out of the boat, wade to the crocodile, and you, well, you tackle it and you grab the neck and then throw it in a bag to put it back in the boat to drive it back to the farm. And um, with me being the white tourist, they actually picked a pretty large one, which wouldn't even fit in the bags. We couldn't take it with us because, uh, you know, for the experience. So it was too large for one person. We went out with two and, um, the second guy went for the tail and I went for the neck on count of three, but he was faster on the tail than I had 
uh, a good grip on the neck. So it started to turn around and it bit me in the arm and him in the finger. And then I tried to swim away, rammed the boat and then disappeared. That was quite the experience. It's a nice souvenir as well, the scar. You're lucky you got out of there with just a, a small uh, flesh wound, I guess, I suppose. <laughs> uh, uh, crocodile is lucky that it got away. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, you also had your bicycle stolen, and you were in the, the middle of Africa then. Uh, what did you do after that? Did you have to buy another bicycle? Did you oh, have no, another no, no. shipped? It was on my way to Africa. It was oh, on the oh. fourth day of the trip. I started in Germany. The bike was stolen in Germany, in Frankfurt. Oh, that's terrible, right? Right in the beginning of your so, trip. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> no, I did go back home for a week. I went to the insurance, went to the police and so on. And um, I ended up buying a, a city bike for 100 bucks at the next corner, like something really, really cheap. And then I rode that till Israel. And it was pretty much falling apart at that point. And I was couch surfing with the owner of a bike store. Uh, the last good bike store before Africa starts. And with him together, I built a new bicycle, which he sold me relatively cheap. I still have the frame. It's in my garage, yeah. So tell me a little bit more some of these other epic trips, like uh, Argentina to Canada. I mean, that, that's one of the most, uh, that must be one of the most spectacular rides in the world, right? Uh, uh, yeah, it was the longest trip as well. It was 18 months consecutive. Um, I went with my girlfriend. It was her first time outside of Europe. It was quite interesting for her. First bike trip as well. And um, we tried to hit every country in between, like every country in South America, Central America, North America. And um, I'm not sure how to sum it up, really, because there were so many different things. You have the Amazon with the jungle, tropical rainforest. And you have Patagonia, which looks a bit like Switzerland and so cold. Everything was frozen, strong winds. And then you have um, the Caribbean, like Central America, where we sailed to Panama around the Darien's Cap and spent time on tiny islands, unfortunately with a lot of sand flies. And then you get into this Latin America, you know, Yucatan Peninsula with the Mayan ruins. And then I did uh, the Route 66 in the U.S. So a lot of, I don't know, the typical Western, what you try to imagine the red rocks and the big open desert in the US. And then uh, I went up to the Great Lakes and into Canada to Toronto and uh, Montreal, where it was very much European. It was the end of summer. And then, I don't know, so many different parts of that trip. It's hard to, to think of it as one trip. You must have seen so many things and places that other people can only imagine about. What are some of your favorite experiences? Uh, definitely the people I meet, um, the couch surfing and um, just random strangers that pick you up off the road or that you meet in, you know, third world countries and developing countries. Because in Europe, it's mostly everyone for himself. There's a big distance between the people. If I go through Scandinavia or the Germanic countries, then there's not much interaction. But as soon as you're outside of Europe, it's so amazing. I think in America you call that trail magic. Trail magic. Yeah, you never heard of it? It's um, In the U.S. you have these three big trails that go from Mexico to Canada, Pacific Crest Trail, Appalachian Trail, and uh, Continental Divide Trail. And there are a lot of people that help the people that hike. Like they leave free food and they offer accommodation, free water, information, and so on. 
And that seemed very new to the people in America because they're also unused to it. <laughs> but you get that pretty much every day when you ride a bike through Turkmenistan or, I don't know, Tanzania, Zimbabwe. It's just the locals see you like, oh, yeah, there's this crazy foreigner on a bicycle. What is he doing here? Come here. Sit down. Have a tea. Tell me a story. <laughs> I haven't experienced uh, the trail magic yet, but I have, uh, I have noticed that you know, once you, you leave behind your, your own country or where you seem familiar, that suddenly you know, people are curious about you and you're exotic and uh, they want to get to know everything they can about you. And then you tell them, oh, I mean, I'm traveling around the world and they, they, they want to ask you those questions and, and they want to help you in any way they can. I, I think that's uh, pretty similar to what you're, what you're referring to, the trail magic. Yeah. I mean, it happens in hostels, too. I remember when I started traveling, everyone had, oh, my God, you've been on the road three months, six months. You have so many stories and so much info. And can you help me with this? And then after a year, I was, you know, not the rookie anymore. And I was the one giving the advice. And now after eight years, I try to stay clear of hostels a little bit because it will end up having I will end up having the same conversation all over again. Like, oh, my God, you've been to over 100 countries. Let's tell me about this country. And yeah. the first, I don't know, 10, 15 questions all sound very familiar. I know exactly what you're talking about. You get a little bit burnt out, you know, when people asking you, like, oh, where are you from? How long have you been traveling? And it seems like the same conversations that happen over and over again at hostels. And uh it's like, you know, I, for the sake of your time, it's just you, you kind of get a little jaded to it, I guess. You know, it's like, I don't want to keep rehashing this. But I also remember when I, when I first went to Thailand and I just I saw all these backpackers everywhere, you know, all over the place. And, and just hearing their stories about, you know, this one guy who crossed Vietnam on a motorcycle or, you know, scuba diving in Indonesia, stuff like this. And I'm like, wow, it's, it's all so exciting. You know, I just I felt so wide eyed and. I don't know. I got I got really excited just hearing all the stories and stuff. How long have you been to Southeast Asia now? So, do you still have that amazement, or did it change by now? <laughs> uh, I first came here three years ago, and I've I've been in Asia uh, in the Pacific for a year and a half now uh, on this trip. So I definitely feel like it's it's changed a lot for me. I feel like I'm a lot more grounded because there's definitely a point I think where. Uh, it stops becoming traveling, and it's just kind of more like life, I guess. Would you say it's true for you as well? Mm -hmm. uh, I think it, it just becomes a little bit more Ooh, difficult. Um, I try to break that routine because um, every trip I take, um, I try to do something new. Like the last trip, I did bikepacking, which means it's not a normal bicycle with racks and panniers, but it's very lightweight, everything on the frame. And... The Siberia leg was the coldest I ever had, so I tried the winter cycling. And next year, I will take a folding bike, which will be a new type of bike and a new experience as well. Tell me a little bit more about that. About the folding bike trip in 2016. Yeah, for someone who's not uh, familiar with a folding bike and what it is. And, and tell me about your trip as well. Ah, okay. Um, I, since I try to go to every country in the world, I run out of places. So I have the Caribbean left, Central Africa, and then some islands and the Arabic world. And there are lots of closed land borders there. Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, there are all some security issues. And Lebanon, I can only fly in. Kuwait, Qatar, Bahrain, it's all flights. And the 
balance states the same. So if I bicycle with me, I would have to put it in a big box and pay $50, $100 extra on every flight. And it's a big hassle. So a folding bike, which is 10 kilos and you can put it in your hand luggage, is so much better for these countries. And in 2016, I want to do at least a dozen countries in Asia, which is uh, Lebanon, Iraq, Kuwait, Qatar, Bahrain, Oman, hopefully Saudi Arabia, and then some island states like Sri Lanka, the Seychelles, Maldives, and some tiny countries, Bhutan, Bangladesh, and maybe uh, a little hop into Afghanistan as well, depending on the security situation and if I get the visa. So I will do a lot of flying, which is unusual for me. And for that, I will take a folding bike, a Brompton. You mentioned before the interview that you like to provide helpful information to people. It's one of the things you'd love to talk about. Uh, what type of questions are you often asked and what advice do you like to give to people? And uh, who are the people that, that ask you for advice? Are they looking to take trips on their own? Well, it's usually online on Reddit or on Facebook where they ask. And uh, it's in the bicycle touring and bicycle section. So it's mostly about the equipment, the bikes, and there are a lot of foreigners who say, I know bicycle touring in my own country. Like I go on a weekend trip, I go one week to visit a city, but they don't know how to get across continents, visas, uh, money changing, what kind of equipment, how much it will cost in the end. And sometimes I get a lot of uh, similar questions, like the one about the financing, for example. But I had about 20 people or so that by now I have helped to get on the road and they later wrote me, you were the inspiration or you helped me make this possible and that's always nice to hear. But I don't really know how much information I could go, uh, I could give here verbally because it's something specific to a trip. So someone asks me and then I give him the information he needs. I can't just randomly spout nonsense now. <laughs> I, I love how you uh, you finance these trips. So you basically just just rent out uh, your house in Germany, and and that's it. That's it's so simple, right? Uh, it's not just that. Um, I actually sold it to a low monthly fee, so I don't have the responsibility with the rent. So at some point, the money will run out. Then I also have income from programming. I do a computer game where people can donate if they like, and I have the free equipment that I get from sponsors, like free bicycle, free clothing. Uh, for next year, I have Brompton, Montbell, and Ruckel who give me equipment. And uh, I can keep that after the tour. And in theory, I could sell it. And while I don't earn money with it, it saves me a lot of spendings. For example, on the trip to Japan and back, I spent 5,000 euros on the trip. But the equipment I used was worth 10,000 euros. So it's actually a large part of the spendings that I don't have to pay for myself. And in future, I wanted to try uh, a Kickstarter to write a book, also a how-to, a guide to help people on the road. Uh, yeah, so, so tell me a bit more, like when people ask you for advice as far as finances are concerned, um, you know, what tips do you have for people if they want to do their own adventure? Well, there are three ways. Either you save up a lot of money first, then you either have a passive income or you work on the road. And you can always prolong your trip by reducing your spendings. And I think if you do it like you do with, you know, public transport and hostels, then you spend a lot more money as if you would compare it to someone who cycles and camps. Because 
if I ride a bicycle, my transport costs are zero. And if I camp and couch surf, my accommodation costs are zero. So I, I'm ending up with food and visas and the occasional ferry to get across some kind of ocean. But um, I remember my first year backpacking, I spent three times as much as I do now. Like bike trips or hiking or hitchhiking, that will really bring down your budget. So investing in camping gear is well worth it. And how do you manage to, uh, you mentioned that you do some programming work. Are, are you working with clients back home? And, and how do you manage to do that while you're uh, sleeping in a tent, for instance? I actually did program in my tent a little bit. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not for clients. It's not, um, it's my own private project. It started out as a hobby. I've been doing this for four years. It's a game that you can download and play for free. And you don't have to pay for it. So people can donate if they like, but there is no price tag involved and there's no schedule. There's no, no nothing I have to adhere to. If I want, I can sit down and I can program for a week every day or I can do nothing for a month and that doesn't influence me except that there will be less releases and less donations. But it's all just a labor of love, so to speak. It's for fun. And is, is that uh, passive income significant? The donations? No, no, not at all. <laughs> okay. I think in total it's about a few thousand euros. You mentioned that you do, uh, you've done some other things like uh, couch surfing, right? How do you, what's your approach with couch surfing? Do you, um, do you prefer that to, to camping because you have a, a warm shower and, and you can clean off a little bit more? And uh, what else do you do? Or how do you, how do you couch surf and, and, you mentioned you don't stay in any hostels or anything, right? Well, I do stay in hostels, but oh, less okay. often. And a lot of countries, hostels don't exist. Like they're virtually unknown. So um, it's hugely a factor of where I am. If I'm in the Sahara, I cannot go in a hostel. I cannot couch surf. There's no one. I have to camp. So in between places on the countryside, I will camp. But if I'm in a big city, if I would be in Bangkok, I would not camp because there's no place to camp. Uh, couch surfing is something I do in larger towns. Um, I also use warmshowers.org, which is similar to couch surfing, but it's exclusively for bicyclists. And it's a, a somewhat smaller, more close-knit community. And I don't know. I mean, you've done couch surfing yourself. You know how it works. And they also, <laughs> when I'm in Germany, we're hosting couch surfers here. There's a Russian opera singer here right now, and this evening another cyclist will arrive. Yeah, I know. Um, I do. I do have done some couch surfing when I'm moving around, but I, I find it hard to. Because sometimes it can be inconvenient because you know the person might live an hour outside of the city, uh, and it's you know why not just pay five dollars for a hostel bed or something like that, or. Um, I also know, I want to ask you a little more about the camping, because this is something I'm interested in. I know there's a website, uh, campinmygarden.com, and I know that it's it's like uh, people put their properties uh, up there for like one euro or, or two, three euros, and you can camp in their backyard, for example. Um, what, what tips do you give to people as far as... Um, you know, finding a good camp spot on the road or what, what kind of camp do you, uh, I'm sorry, what kind of tent do you prefer and, uh, you know, any, any advice you can give uh, to some of our listeners who haven't, haven't done this before? Yeah, sure. Um, with tents, I go with a double-walled ultralight tent. 
um, which is somewhere in the middle between an expedition tent and the real ultralight thing like tops and quilts. Like a lot of people on the American trails, they only use tops, which is a piece of cloth, and then use trekking poles or the bicycle to string it up. This is a bit too hardcore for me because I also travel a lot in third world countries where you have a lot of insects and insect-borne diseases. So I do like my closed mosquito net. But if you want to travel the world, you don't need a Hilleberg, 1,000 euro expedition, freestanding, snow shedding, whatever tent. Like a lot of people seem to commit some kind of overkill when it comes to the durability of their equipment. And for finding camp spots, it depends if you go there to camp or if you go there to sleep. Like if you just want to hang out for a day or two and you go camping and you make a fire and you have people over and you take a break, then you, you go to a river, you go to a lake, you go in the forest. But if you're on the road and it just, oh, it gets getting dark, so I have to stop cycling. So I will sleep now and the next morning I will get up and cycle the same road then pretty much any campground is good. But overall, I would heavily recommend stealth camping, wild camping, like where you pitch your tent somewhere on a field, in a forest, next to the road, whatever. Because uh, campgrounds, they, they charge a lot of money for offering not a lot of extra inconvenience. I mean, you are carrying your house, you're carrying your bed, you're carrying your mattress, and you already have your independence. If you go on a campground, you need to call ahead, book it, you need to find the location, you need to make sure there is one every so and so often. And I think it restricts you more than if you go stealth camp. When you do camping out in the wild, are you ever in any danger from uh, wild animals or uh, just hooligans? You know, like uh, unruly youth? youth? <laughs> I I had no negative experience while camping. Um, the people barely find me because I pitch the tent after it gets dark and I leave in the next morning because I'm on a bicycle, I'm on the road, I'm moving. If I would stay somewhere longer, I would make sure that it's a bit more remote. And animals are not really a big problem while camping. There is bear country in North America and then in Central Africa, you you have to... Be a bit careful with hippos mostly. But other than that, no problem at all. <laughs> now and then you have to shoo away some spiders or scorpions, but, you know, that's nothing bad. Because I, I remember I interviewed uh, Mike Spencer Bound, and he's, he's been backpacking for 25 years now, I think, and he, he mentioned that there was occasionally a run-in with a bear or uh, a tiger or something that got aggressive and... Uh, he, he, he's like, I'm, I'm over it after a while. I'm going to return back to uh, civilization because he was living in the bush for so long. Uh, but, but nice to know that you, you never had to, to deal with anything too, anything too serious. Oh, no, I think bears you only find it. Yeah, yeah continue. <laughs> so what's, what's next for you? Um, you mentioned that uh, the money is going to run out. What are your plans? Because I know that uh, some of the countries that you have to go to, they must be really remote and difficult to get to and you're going to have to finance them somehow. Do you, you mentioned that you had a, a plan to write a book. Uh, what else do you ha have on the horizon? Well, for next year, I want to do Arabic countries and the Indian subcontinent and hopefully write a book while doing so. But um, I'm not running out of money anytime soon. <clears throat> so 
it's more a hobby project. See if I can get it funded and then write it. If not, well, it's not that bad. Um, so my plan is to do this till I'm 30. So I started just before my 20th birthday. So I said, okay, 10 years, that's fine. I will travel, not worry about anything. And then when I'm 30, I want to sit down and try to establish some kind of career out of this, either as an author, a guide, a speaker, run a blog, you know, there are lots of options. And um, Do you I have a couple of years to figure that out. I think I will still travel slowly and I will still do it from a foreign country. Like, you know, I could settle down in Thailand for a year and try to build up some form of career. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel that you'll be able to settle into a normal life after all this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, traveling, I'm used to being... Uh, thrown into different situations and have to adapt to them. So if you throw me into a normal life with daily routine, I think I can adapt to that too. I don't know, Martin, uh, Patrick, I'm sorry. I don't know, Patrick, because uh, I, um, you know, after I started traveling like six months, a year, and then I came back home, I just felt like I can't go back to this life. <laughs> and just, just trying to sit, you know, in an office, for example, and, and work under a boss and and you know they're they're envious of me and they're they're jealous of me and and because of my travels and and I feel like uh, well why do I if, if they're jealous of me then why do I want to to settle in and live like them you know <laughs> so I just I feel like I couldn't I, it's oh, well, I'm, that urge is still there you know mm -hmm. just to to get out and, and to keep going yeah well I would do something similar to what you are doing now I would move to a cheaper country and work online on my own on my own projects I wouldn't move to Germany and become an employee in some kind of big corporations where I work to make someone else rich <laughs> Fair enough uh, well awesome thank you so much for your your time on this interview Patrick and uh, for being patient um, is there anything that you want to add or any advice that you'd like to give, uh, you know, as far as um, listener, you know, whether they want to get started on an adventure of their own, you know, what, how can they handle the fears that are holding them back or anything? Well, yeah, there are two good ways to get um, hold of these fears. The one thing would be to check out online blogs of people that have done similar things and to write the authors. So instead, if you read something, oh, yeah, this guy has done this amazing thing by bicycle, I will never do this. Instead of that, just write this guy a message, and then he will surely help you to get on the road as well. The other thing would be to try out smaller things, like step by step. Like I don't know if you heard about the idea of micro-adventures, where people that have a normal job and don't have the time to you know, travel around the world in half a year, they can go out one night camping. They can go jump in the river and try something smaller and then do this while they plan the big trip to ease the fears a little bit and, you know, get their feet wet. Yeah, it's fantastic advice. Uh, I think with each little small step you take outside of your comfort zone, it expands and expands more and then and suddenly you're doing things that you couldn't have imagined uh, a month ago or three, six months ago. Comfort is slowly killing you, I think. <laughs> I mean, just because you're comfortable doesn't mean... And I'd like to I'd like to add to that too. Just just say yes to opportunities as they come. You know, if somebody says like, uh, "Hey, do you want to go camping for the weekend?" or "Hey, do you want to go to uh, uh, I don't know France for a week or something?" Just just say yes more often, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, that's how all this 
couchsurfing and invitations on the road works as well. Like, oh yeah, come on in, have a tea, and then okay, yes, of course. Yes, exactly. Say no. <laughs> I, I remember with my ex-girlfriend when we started traveling, and uh, I'm like, you know, let's let's go stay with these people, and she 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 felt like she's like it feels like it's not appropriate, you know, because she hasn't traveled much, so she's not used to just like. You know, staying with a stranger in their their house or something like that. You know, and I'm like, oh no, it's fine, it's normal. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I can relate. Like, yeah. <laughs> excellent. Well, thank you so much, Patrick. Uh, you mentioned uh, in your response that if you see someone doing something that that they like to do, go ahead and contact them. So I want to ask you if somebody wants to uh, yeah. get to know you better or get in touch with you, how can they do that? Well, they can find a lot of contact info on my website. I, I'm easily reachable on Facebook and by email, or um, I often frequent um, Reddit bicycle touring. I mean, the internet makes it really easy to get in contact with people. Okay, fantastic. And then your website is uh, worldbicyclist.com, and then the, the Reddit you mentioned uh, is reddit.com forward slash r forward slash bicycle touring. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Patrick, and yes. uh, best of luck in your future endeavors. Okay, thank you. Good luck.